welcome to a very special episode of Phil's Breakfast Metal. This week, you join me and Rob for a nice fireside chat, a kind of civilised intellectual discussion. We won't be dealing with any of that uncouth, noisy nonsense this week. Today, we're discovering we're discussing books. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, we've had a few friends request we do this because I think me especially has read way too many metal history books, biographies, and so on. Phil, Phil brought too many books to physically carry to my house today, so it had to be driven here. We have quite an amazing pile of them here. Um, so yeah, we're we're going to go through discuss quite a few um, few books. Like we're going to start with the kind of more biography stuff, and then get into the kind of metal histories mainly written by people outside of the actual bands. Um, to kick things off, it would be nice to start with a relatively, well, actually incredibly recently released book. Mm. This is one I haven't read, but uh, Rob's just finished. Uh, this is Devin Townsend's autobiography. Yeah, so, I mean, Devin's sort of undenied of this for ages, but he's finally actually done it. Um, it's called Only Half There, and it was released in 2016. Um, it's a really interesting book um, if you really like Devin Townsend. Um, if you don't like Devin Townsend or you don't get on with his personality, it might be a slightly trickier read because it's done in this, what to me feels like really genuine and really like nice to read because I've seen him quite a lot. I've watched interviews with him. I sort of know a little bit of what he's like. And this book is written in this very sort of stream of consciousness style feel and is organised very much just how Devin feels to organise it. So it comes across as really, really genuine because of that. Um, and I don't think it really suffers in terms of organisation because it tends to split things thematically as opposed to strictly chronologically. So you have a section where he talks about the stuff with Steve Vai and then moving into a section with strapping and then a section on the solo work. But then a lot of the solo work happened at the same time as strapping. So the chronology sort of jumps a little bit, mm. but it feels thematically very appropriate and you feel all the... So like, otherwise you'd be jumping... Um, sort of like Devin's life has really between these really calm albums or albums like Ocean Machine and then jumping back into like City or Alien or something like that and it would feel a bit weird so I quite like how it's organised in that sense and um, Devin's had a weird musical life um, he's played what, 16 albums now I think mm. um, and so there's loads of interesting stuff in here like one thing that really stood out to me was his relationship with Gene Hoagland um, who he seemed to get on really well with and the way that they wrote songs for, songs for strapping the way that's explored in here is really interesting um, and just like an interesting sort of point of view into other people within the metal scene and how Devin somehow ended up in that despite really not being into most death metal or anything like that somehow being in one of the more extreme bands too um, and all the stuff about Steve Vai is just weird as well. Like, um, I think you've heard the crazy tour story um, <laughs> with the fire extinguisher and stuff. I won't spoil that because it's really worth reading. Yeah, or... this is what I was going to say. It was pretty bad. We'll try and avoid any spoilers for these books because a lot of them have amazing stories and mm. us summarising them is not going to be the best way to hear them. <laughs> but yeah, with the Devin Townsend book, does he discuss like any of his time with like when he was briefly in the Wild Hearts at all? Like yeah, that? yeah. So I mean, I I completely forgotten that the Wild Hearts were even a thing before I read this again, but. He he does discuss it and there's several points where he makes reference to specific concerts um, which, you, which I, as I was going through I sort of found on YouTube and watched and it's really weird to sort of like go back and watch all of that and there's a whole bunch of people in the comments as well who were saying that they're at this part in the book as well um, yeah the Wild Hearts stuff was weird he got on very well with the singer of the Wild Hearts um, but that sort of leads into the he talks a lot about you know how he has dealt like mentally with the people that he's known and like the lifestyle that he's lived um, and he's very honest about that. Um, it's 
also very funny. Like he, I think he's a very entertaining guy. He's good mm. to watch, and he and he writes in an entertaining way as well. But then it is kind of dark. Like he explores some of the stuff about his mental illness and bipolar disorder and things like that in a very sort of no punches pulled sort of way, and gives a very honest account of his feelings, which like he will admit within the book he doesn't think are fair. Like a lot of the time, yeah. yeah. Um, so again, it's yeah, it's very interesting from that perspective, and I don't think it ever ends up sounding whiny or anything. It just feels very honest, as if nothing is being left out. So I really liked that um, as a huge Devin Townsend fan. I, I sort of like that warts and all approach to it. Um, you touched on something interesting there, actually, because yeah. it's the only one of the books we're covering today where, like, for the biography ones, where it's actually written by Devin Townsend. Mm. Most of these other people have collaborated with an author to put it together, like, whereas his seems. It is him sitting down at the uh, at a typewriter. Yeah, I think so, to my knowledge. And like, it really, again, there's like the sort of stream of consciousness style that he has. If you've ever seen him talk, it really comes across as that. Um, and yeah, I think that person who works really well. Um, mm. But you would, you do have to be at least interested in some of Devon's work because there's bits of Devon's work I don't get. Like, there's bits he talks about quite a lot. Um, with his Dev Lab and the Hummer projects, um, and to an extension, Ghost as well. Yeah. Which, which, which are bits that I don't really get. Like, they're bits that, of Devin Townsend's sort of sound and stuff like that, which just doesn't sit well with me. But it's still kind of interesting to hear him talk about it. Um, yeah. And because there's, like, so much stuff to cover, and it's a relatively short book, even if there are bits that you don't like strapping or something like that, um, there are bits of it that you will enjoy. I think if you, if you enjoy any of Devon's stuff, there's probably bits in this that you'll really like, and it will never spend way too long on any individual bit because there's just so many albums and stuff to get through. Um, other fun thing, he goes into his stuff about producing bands, which he's done oh, yeah, loads yeah. of, um, and I didn't really realise. So the one that really stuck out to me is he did um, "As the Palaces Burn," um, like Lamb of God's sort of big breakthrough album. Uh, which I never realised. So I know he did the later one. I didn't realise he did the earlier yeah, stuff. Yeah, he did that one. And he, he you know, he talks about his sort of process producing and stuff like that as well. He doesn't really do that much of it anymore other than for himself. Uh, and he is really, really good at it. But um, yeah, I just didn't realise he had that sort of impact, particularly on sort of Lamb of God and some other like um, uh, sort of more melodic or metalcore type bands around the same time where he did a really good job and people seem to really laud his job and stuff like the, that. The Lamb of God thing uh, on Epicloud, there's a song where he puts the Lamb of God riff at the end of it as a kind oh, of, yeah. sort of <laughs> semi-piss take. Completely forgot what song it is. Yeah, no, also, I can't remember. Also, he was meant to record the first Berserker album. Oh, was he? Yeah, and that, that never quite worked <laughs> out. Would have been a really different beast if that was Yeah, that would have been think. really weird. Um, yeah, the other quite cool, quite cool thing, which will work with one of the other books we'll be covering, um, is he talks about um, a guy who ends up, ended up managing him for the Devon Townsend Project, which is where, you know, like, it all came together and he had this really solid band they've been doing all these great shows. Um, Andy Farrow, who's also the manager of Opeth. Yes, and like, yes. Hearing him talking about how his relationship with Andy Farrow was kind of interesting because it seems that Andy Farrow is sort of a no nonsense guy who's nice, but like, you know, if, if you're not doing something right, like, I think after a show he spoke to Devin and said, you know, like, some of that was good, but these bits were shit. And Devin said he really didn't get on with that at first and then realised that this guy really knew what he was talking Originally about. Originally Paradise Lost tour manager. Was he? Before, yeah, before he, before he was assigned to Opeth. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, this touches on a whole bunch of like areas of metal, not just the music and not just the tour stories, but talks a bit about the idea of um, being a producer and the idea of like managing and how you run your own time and stuff like that. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there. There's quite a bit of variety, um, which I think made it a really sort of fulfilling read. Um, and I think there's still loads of interesting stuff to come from Devon, so it's a nice sort of um, sort of catalogue of what up to now he's done. 
Uh, and it's got a really nice CD of it as well. Uh, if you do like Devon, it's got a CD called Iceland that you recorded in Iceland for some reason. Because um, <laughs> everyone likes Iceland. Yeah, uh, it's a cool place. Which, um, uh, yeah, it's just a bunch of acoustic versions of different songs. Uh, the thing that really stands out about it is it's got an acoustic version of Deadhead off of Accelerated Evolution, which is really cool because you get to hear Devin's screams and I think the most detail I've ever heard them bar isolated tracks. And you get really nice reverberation from whatever, like, room he's in, just him with an acoustic guitar. And that's really cool, because the man can still scream incredibly well. He doesn't seem to have lost any of his edge in terms of clean or harsh vocals. So, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly recommend it if you're into Devin's music. Yeah, yeah. Um, from that, you were going to quickly mention a few kind of more... Uh... I don't know, generic autobiographies are ones I think a lot of people would have already read. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, these are books I don't actually have with me, so this is just sort of going off my recollection. Um, I remember reading Mustaine's A Life in Metal. I think it might have a different name somewhere else when I was like researching this. Either that or Mustaine has released three books, and I, I don't think that's true. Yeah, that's likely. And I don't unlikely. think you should have. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... um. This is interesting, because like Mustaine is a bit of... Dave Mustaine from Megadeth is a bit of a controversial figure in metal. Um, he's made some fantastic albums and some really bad ones. Um, but, you know, he's an interesting guy. He's quite angry and aggressive when he was younger and is now this sort of, you know, um, quite right-wing um, Christian guy who's, you know, doesn't like Obama and stuff like that. But the thing that's interesting about this... I mean, it goes over the Metallica stuff a lot, and Dave Mustaine talks about Metallica a lot. Really? This. That's surprising. <laughs> but, but, but hey, you, you expect that. Um, but it does, you know, it talks about his, you know, addiction to heroin and, like, other musicians that he'd met, and basically how he had a really tough time as a kid. Like, one of the bands he was in really early, Panic Attack, one of the people in that band, like, died after their first couple of shows, and that, like... He talks about that, and he talks about drugs, and he talks about like difficulties with people, um, and difficulties with ADHD and mental health and stuff like that. And you know, it just made me feel a bit, you know, sorry for Dave Mustaine. Like, you know, he does things which we don't like, but you know, he's had a really tough life, and I, I don't think we can write him off as being a terrible person just because he does a few things that we disagree with. So, um, and some some of the stuff he goes into some of the lyrical concepts behind songs, which is kind of interesting. Um, there's a fun tour story about why Holy Wars was written about going to Ireland, which I again won't spoil because it's quite a fun story. And it's basically Dave Mustaine making a horrible mistake in reference to like uh, the troubles in Ireland. Oh god! <laughs> so, yeah, then, but then he wrote Holy Wars about it, so that's cool. Um, but yeah, uh, the, one of the things that I felt was a little bit left out was this was basically all the drama that's happened in Megadeth with band members being fired and stuff like that. That's not really covered. Um, and so it feels like that sort of stuff. He just didn't want to talk about it, which which would have been cool to hear from him. Cause, yeah. But... Yeah, because apparently I think Nick Menza particularly, I remember there being a, quite a heated story of that mm. firing. Yeah, so so it doesn't really go in much depth about that from my memory. So it's a bit of a shame. But, you know, it shines a bit of a light on the bits of Dave Mustaine's life, which, you know, have been tough for him. So, yeah, sympathy for Mustaine. And, of course, he finds Jesus at the end, um, which, you know... Fine, that's all right. He sort of probably needs that at this point. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's you know at, at that point in his life, he just had the thing actually where I think he fell asleep on his hand and he got nerve damage. Yeah, was, yeah. Was worried he'd never be able to play guitar again, which must be terrifying, like for someone like Mustaine. So wasn't his quote saying like I've tried every other drug? Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I'd recommend it just to get a bit of a you know glance to Mustaine's mind because he's often just you know written off as a dick, but. You know, it's, it's not quite as simple as that. He's at, he's at a tough time. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. I, I don't know that I hate Mustaine quite as much as he is hated in the metal community. Yeah, yeah. Don't know I'd want to spend time with the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the second one, which will be even briefer because I read this longer ago than that, um, was My Appetite for Destruction by Stephen Adler, who's uh, the original drummer of Guns N' Roses. Now, I don't, I don't really get Guns N' Roses anymore. That's something I really liked when I was a teenager and something I don't really get on with now. But, um, you know, they're sort of legends in the rock world and particularly for their drug taking and all the shows and stuff like that. And, you know, Slash and Axel are still huge celebrities. Um, Stephen Adler's sort of the one who got left behind and forgotten about because he played on Appetite for Destruction and then left um, for doing too many drugs. Uh, <laughs> Sandra O'Neill would say, what the fuck? <laughs> um, but, like, this is, a, this is really interesting and really genuine about basically his struggle with drugs and addiction and it ends on this note as recently he has played with Guns N' Roses a few times but it ends on this note where he's saying that because he had a stroke not that long ago before this book was written um, that he thinks things are going okay now but really he has no idea and that the nature of addiction means that at any day it could all spiral off into hell again so it was a really like refreshingly honest take on the whole thing about a guy who really feels that like you know, everything just got fucked up and he, he doesn't, he sort of talks about his own responsibility in that. He definitely had a role to play, but just in general, how things went really wrong and it was really honest and nice and didn't feel like it was pulling any punches for that sort of stuff. But at the same time, horrible because it's all about drug addiction. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I'd recommend that if you are interested in Guns N' Roses or just interested in like what the music, you know, business industry is like for people who end up getting left behind by it. Um, but I think drug addiction leads us on to some of the books you wanted to yeah, talk about. Yeah, the, there's two books I've read pretty recently. They're both both highly acclaimed. Um, like, like one particularly has got like the Guardian has written a lot of articles about being quite interesting. First one I want to cover is Ministries: The Lost Gospels, according to Al Jurgensen. Um, although not written by Al, it was written by John Weirdhorn or Widerhorn, who um, basically talked with Al and Al, kind of gave him the story he wanted mm. to tell and this guy sort of put it together in an actual readable form because if you've ever heard an interview about Jorgensen that man makes no sense <laughs> um, this is one of the most incredible kind of uh, like histories of a band or a history of a man's life inside a band I've ever come across none of it sounds real it all sounds like this man's entire life is such a mess of like complete hedonistic insane drug taking but like this the like this book is genuine like the kind of obvious comparison is motley cruise the dirt that is the mm. go-to book for everyone of rock and roll excess this goes way beyond like that isn't hyperbole this really does like the stories of things he gets up to the amount of excesses going on it, it's in what's like actually the really incredible theme throughout is it's all the way through it's al's completely over the top lifestyle like just constant cocktails of drugs and alcohol, like serious problems with heroin and so on, trying to score drugs in horrible places. It's a miracle music is ever made in it. <laughs> and actually one of the most interesting parts of it is his discussions of like, because Ministry, like it's something easily forgotten now. Ministry were huge briefly. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of didn't know this, but like at the height of their career, they were able to get these huge studio budgets where Al was able to hire a studio for like, 30 odd days and just fill it with drugs and prostitutes <laughs> and get everyone so blasted out of their mind and they, they'd have an amazing time all evening, drink mm. and party till 5am. Everyone would crash. 
then he'd get up at like seven and just find the bits of crap they recorded and manage to edit this into amazing songs <laughs> by by looping samples and so on. Like this is a particularly great story. This is like the only one I spoil because it's just great in um in isolation is the story of how Jesus Built My Hot Rod was recorded, mm. of the vocalist he got in to sing it just got so fucking high and out of his mind, would only speak gibberish into the <laughs> mic, and the, the eventual Jesus Built My Hot Rod, their like, most successful single, it's just Al's just edited the gibberish into a catchy song. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, Ministry do have some really good songs, mm. and some really interesting albums and stuff like that, and... Yeah, that's weird. Although the the one the big difference in this and Evan Townsend book, you don't have to like Ministry in the slightest for this to be <laughs> interesting. It, like this is just a brilliant story. The opening is Al just like is is a story of Al talking to the guy um, John who wrote the book, and it results in just him getting so drunk he just passes out and pisses himself <laughs> just having a conversation with a man. Because unlike a like. Doug Sanhope made this point when sort of reviewing this book because he's a really big fan of mm. epic road stories and this is where I got the recommendation was from his podcast. It's saying, the great thing about this book is it doesn't have the thing almost every great road stories book has of the person getting sober in the last four chapters <laughs> and the last four chapters being a boring and then my life came back together yeah, and it's all great. Yeah. This just keeps on being fucking crazy. I'd, I'd say Stephen Adler one's very much like that as well. It sort of ends on that note of like, it's not gone. Uh, I mean, I guess this one's sort of different as in like the craziness is still going on. But like a lot of the stuff I've read sort of about addiction is like, you know, like it just doesn't really get better in that sense. Like a lot of these people are still at the edge where it could all fuck up. Yeah. Al has to walk around his house wearing a crash helmet because he keeps passing out randomly. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> like, but he's still drinking. <laughs> <laughs> he says he can't take any more drugs, but he's, he's found a loophole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's, um, I mean, we won't spoil the story, but there's an amazing story about when he meets Metallica. <laughs> that, that is, oh, that is a highlight. Is so, so good. <laughs> there, there's a, there, there's a lot of stories of really famous metal and rock musicians in there that are just really interesting and really intense insight to how crazy stuff can get on the mm. road like if you have an interest in mad road stories this is about as good as it gets like it's stuff as well like halfway through the book Al realises he hates half his band and they end up segregating the tour bus and oh, like resulting in he set off a firework on the tour bus <laughs> firing at band members who like like the, the stuff they get up to, it, it doesn't sound real, but it's been co corroborated throughout. Like, basically, yeah. this is as true as it gets. It, it's one of those books you will just read straight through in no time because it is so much fun and so dark and hilarious. The one it makes me want to leap for onto. Now, it's completely cheating the brief because this is not a metal band or even a <laughs> rock band, but the book is the perfect follow up to Ministries. This is uh, No Effects' The Hepatitis Bathtub and Other Stories. Much like the Ministry book, you don't have to like the band at all. I, I never really got into them. I remember really liking one of their albums when I was like 12. Mm. But I've gone back and since realised Fat Mike is like the worst vocalist <laughs> ever. <laughs> Which is addressed at length in the yeah, book. Yeah. But yeah, this is just a, a truly brilliant set of road stories. So it's put together by Jeff Alunis, um, who's kind of... Interviewed people all the way along, so we get I all the you various. Said Jeff Loomis for a second. Not Jeff like... Loomis. Yeah. <laughs> That'd Amazing be a weird crossover. Yeah, <laughs> talents. No, so it's all um, it's all the members of the band being interviewed throughout, including ex-members, and the story is amazing the way they put it together, where 
all the members have written their little bits separately and they've only seen and been able to react to the previous member's bit of the story as they write it. So people are having a genuine reaction to stuff they've never heard. <laughs> there is some truly horrifying stuff revealed that as it breaks you that you see this really terrible thing happened... Turn to the next page. Suddenly, Eric didn't know it happened either, oh, and wow. <laughs> and you like you get their real time reaction. Like the stories in this are so so dark. You get to see the proper like Smelly story, especially is the the proper underbelly, the horrible side of heroin addiction. And he goes into heroin stories in such incredible detail. Like, at times, it's hilarious. At times, it's really moving. At times, it's just terrifying the amount of stuff no one in this book should have survived and and but on top of that there's genuinely heartwarming moments i remember when i was reading this someone had come around to our flat to do something with the power and i was like well i can't do anything else so i'm just going to read and it was probably one of the final smelly chapters i started crying it was so beautiful <laughs> it was one of the nicest things i've ever written as I have ever written, ever ever read, and like, and in true no effects fashion, you read that really heartwarming chapter and move to the next page, and it's a picture of Fat Mike cross dressing, and then the story of his history of like uh, sexual deviancy and in- interest in bondage and so on, and this is kind of the tone of the book, and it, it's more so than being a bad history, like. The albums are mentioned. There's little things in there about them, but it's more road stories. It's more what they were doing while this was all going on. The only real stuff, like, which is where you having some knowledge of the band helps. You get to find out stuff like uh, at the end of Straight Edge, the little trumpet solo wasn't actually a trumpet solo. El Jefe couldn't play a trumpet solo, so he hummed it. Never knew that. Re-listening is, yeah, it's really obvious that's what he did. But yeah, it, I, I'd highly recommend this book if you've got any interest in that kind of... Just, just hearing people at like their wits' end, like... But also mixed with a lot of really heartwarming, good, fun stuff. Yeah, it's just an absolutely mm. brilliant read. And you don't need to like the band. You don't even need to like punk rock. <laughs> right, so that kind of brings us more neatly into the more um, kind of band history kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, pretty good starting point for that is the uh, Hellhammer book. Yeah, so again, this is a book which I don't happen to have uh, with me in Bristol. But um, it's Only Death is Real, uh, which is mainly done by Marty Kerrigan and uh, Thomas Fisher, or Tom Warrior. Uh, it was released in 2010, and it's basically, it's a photo history of um, Hellhammer and early uh, Celtic Frost. Um, but it mainly focuses on Hellhammer, only little bits on Celtic Frost. Um, and it's fascinating, because like Hellhammer um, are one of those bands which just are like nothing else, and at the time they were the most extreme thing in existence. Um, and their influence really can't be sort of overstated. But at the same time, when they performed, like very few people had an appetite for this sort of music, particularly Hellhammer's version of it, which, you know, frankly doesn't stand up to the stuff that Celtic Frost would do afterwards. You know, it, it's sort of messy, and they just about know how to play their instruments. But how this formed is really fascinating, and particularly, you know, it's mainly done from Tom Borio's perspective. His life again has been really really difficult like there's some horrible stories in this about you know the conditions that he lived in and how like tricky stuff was and people dying and things like that um and then that's interspersed with stories about both um tom fisher and martin carrick losing their virginity 
which is a really weird story to read. Um, <laughs> but I've read it, so I need to talk about it. Um, yeah, so it talks a lot about that. It talks a lot about how this sort of early scene with Hellhammer was formed, and there's this sort of legendary place called the Bunker where they used to play, and they, uh, which was literally sort of a bunker, and they drape these sort of Hellhammer things over the back of it and just like play really loud. Uh, sort of random distorted metal in the bottom of this bunker with like the five or so friends who are actually interested in it and it's a really interesting sort of eye-opening thing into how something like that even gets started how where extreme metal came from and hellhammer are one of those bands which formed the whole thing and would go on to influence so many others Mm. and it's got a whole bunch of pictures of the members of Hellhammer and um, Celtic Frost. And if you know anything about early Celtic Frost or like, Hellhammer, yeah. my God, some of those, those band photos are funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it doesn't really need to be said that they looked funny. Like They, they just look funny at that point in their lives. Um, so, that, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting one. Again, I really wish I had a copy of it because I'd love to feel some of it and talk more about it. But this is this is one of the best band histories I've ever read. If you, I mean, even if you don't like Hellhammer or Celtic Frost, if you have any interest at all in metal or extreme metal in any sense, not even the music, just like the idea of the culture or the subculture, definitely worth reading um, and looking through because it gives such a vivid picture of what it was like for you know kids who were fifteen or sixteen and like pushing the boundaries of music despite only just knowing how to play their instruments. Yeah, I think that's yeah. really worthwhile. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, the next one I want to cover, and this is one I've got more recently, I think it was only released in the last year, this is The Book of Opeth, which is another kind of, it's photo history, but it's also kind of a band biography, it's completely chronological, so we get hundreds of photos from, again, it must be stated, this is for fans only, like, if you don't <laughs> like Opeth, this won't sell you on the band, mm. but this is like, it's a, a giant prints kind of, um, well, I don't know what size it is, like, kind of A4 if you made it square, mm. um, book of just hundreds of photos from really early Opeth all the way up to to modern day and it's basically the photos are used as a narrative for the story told by all the members of the band over that time I don't know if they got all the original guy I don't think they get the first two drummers back to actually mm. discuss stuff but like especially all the modern lineup are there and on top of that we've got um Stuff from, um, oh god, what's his name? Tour manager we mentioned earlier. Uh, Andy Farrow. Andy Farrow uh, is interviewed in it. Steve Wilson's interviewed in it. Uh, but it's mainly just a brilliant narrative, mainly led by Mike Ackfeldt, um, just discussing the entire history of Opeth and like the kind of process of recording the albums, the, the whole thing of like finding out by about album four they suddenly had an audience, like <laughs> the, the kind of just very early stuff of growing up in Sweden and attempting to you know, pulled together their weird, unique sound. Because, you know, they came out of something we'll get to in much more detail later, the uh, Swedish death metal scene, but obviously were totally outside of metal mm, at that point in mm. time. And it's really interesting hearing a band taking that direction and moving on and talking about how Opeth got started in a very different way to a lot of bands. Like, they didn't play live for, like, two years. Like, mm. they didn't put anything down on record for ages. Like, most of early Opeth was, like... Uh, Michael and Peter just playing guitar in their bedroom trying to figure out this crazy new music yeah, they were coming yeah. up with. I mean, that, that depends on whether you think they're that original, but personally, I think they're one of the more original bands yeah, out there. Yeah, definitely. So, and so. If, if you have an interest in this is just such a beautifully packaged... Uh, yeah, just think, like, the whole... The cover is beautiful. Like, the whole layout is really, really pleasant-looking. Like, 
And uh, how far does this book go up to? Does it go all the way up to... Um, so, yeah, I read it a little while back. Um, yeah, I guess maybe um, Pale Communion or... So, yeah, I believe it's... I think it's Pale Communion. Cause, yeah. yeah, it came out just before... Uh, just before Sorceress. Sorceress, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, I've just opened a page and it's another Andy Farrow talking about things. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, there's an amazing section at the end. Like, a lot of these books, which are more of band histories, do a discography one. Mm. Their discography has a really fun kind of setup of its... Um, of the, they've taken... They found their entire history of every single, like, seven-inch or weird semi-release <laughs> they've ever had because one guy has all of them. <laughs> I'm just trying to, I can't remember yeah, his yeah. name off the top of my head. It, it just said on the last page, actually, there was um, someone, the collector. Yeah, Alexander Scott and Twist. Yeah, Alexander yeah. Scott and Twist, uh, who just has, like... <laughs> Everything uh, Opeth ever released. Which, yeah. which is an obsessing amount of stuff. <laughs> It's a lot of like four different copies of a vinyl single. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like this, this like, like it's not going to give you huge revelations, but there is stuff like even me as a super fan, I didn't know until reading this. Like, and there's interesting little stories. Like, uh, Mike has a really heartfelt bit uh, talking about when Heritage came out because obviously that's the most hatred the band's ever got. That was mm. the the point where fans really turned on them. And it, it was like, it was quite a kind of heartbreaking thing of him talking about um, when they were doing the promo tour for it. They did like a meet and greet, like listening session, I think it was, where a fan came up to him wearing a shirt that said, R.I.P. Opeth, uh, like whatever the year is. Yeah, yeah. And we, like had a go at him about selling out, but then still wanted a CD signed. And it, it's like really fun, like really funny thing you get of like those people who don't understand that bands are still human, or like people yeah, who are yeah. kind of famous are still have a like yeah, have and, feelings to be hurt. And to think that bands have some form of obligation to please you with all of their like with all of their material, not not just some of it. They can't just make some of the best albums you've ever heard. All of their albums have to be exactly the sort of thing that you want. But yeah, like Michael's discussion of Heritage particularly really made me want to kind of revisit it and try and reappraise it. Because I've always written it off as the one Opeth album I never quite got into as much as the rest. But, you know, uh, I still haven't quite cracked it, but maybe there's something there I'm just missing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the final one of the star I want to go to, and this is, if you like death metal, it's an essential purchase, purely because it comes with the CDs. This is Vader's... <laughs> uh, I don't know how you'd say that. I have no idea how you say that either. Uh, no, but essentially it's Vader's collection of their first three demos. Rather than when re-releasing them, rather than just releasing like a little CD packet, they brought it out as a whole book. So it's a big photo history, much in the same way as Opeth. So it's loads of early day photos of Vader mixed with their first three demos, uh, Live yes. in Decay, Necrolust and Morbid Reich. Yeah, uh, those two and the um, uh, Hellhammer one are pretty much set out in the same way, where they have this sort of like photo story, and then supplemented with interviews from band members and stuff like that as well. Yeah, the the, the big problem with this one, um, it comes across as quite dull in a way because essentially very early Vader was huge amounts of constant lineup change, and there's loads of talking to old members or talking about old members. But essentially, if you're still into Vader, you know Vader is just Peter. Yeah, like, yeah. Vader is is almost in that uh, kind of annihilator vein of just mm, being mm. a one man machine, and so all the stuff that's not about Peter isn't particularly interesting because you have no in, like 
most of the people involved in these early demos never made it anywhere near even the first album. <laughs> obviously, uh, Doc, with yeah, like, the drummer yeah. who was with him for quite a long time. Now, if you don't know about these albums and have an interest in death metal, also not albums, uh, demos, Morbid Reich, I definitely want to cover another time in more detail because Morbid Reich is pretty much the best demo ever made. <laughs> it, it is utterly... Uh, that is a demo of a band who's never recorded properly before. This is like... For a first kind of recording, it's incredible. It is mm. utterly, like, near perfect. The rest, uh, more interesting is a point in history. Live in Decay is a awful quality live recording <laughs> that is almost unlistenable. <laughs> and Necrolust is really interesting. It's very tight, it's very well done, but it's before Peter took over vocals. So you just get this really interesting thing of hearing songs you know and love by Vader. Yeah, where, where you know exactly what the vocal line should be and how it should be delivered. Yeah, yeah. Just without it. Yeah, so I still highly recommend getting it. Like, the book isn't painful to read or anything, it's just not that exciting. But even just flicking through the photos is quite a lot of fun. And if I remember right, it's only about 20 quid, which is worth it for... For three this. albums, it's, it's pretty solid, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we thought we'd play out this set with um, the classic uh, Final Massacre in the Morgan Reich demo form. Yeah. It's been re-recorded so many times, but even the original version is still great. Still very, very decent. And listen out for Peter doing essentially death metal rap. <laughs>
So, second load of books we're going to cover are the ones I didn't really know where to put anywhere. They're kind of hard to classify. First one I want to cover is just kind of a bit of history, effectively. It's a book I got ages ago um, called The A to Z of Thrash Metal by Gary Sharp Young, which is... You know Metal Archives? Like, as a modern metalhead, you've probably come across Metal Archives, the amazing source of seeing every album when it was released and exactly who recorded on it. Mm. Imagine if there was books that did that because the internet didn't. <laughs> so, like, because I'm old enough to have been in a stage where the internet was still a bit crap and you couldn't actually find out anything you actually wanted from it, this was really useful at one point in time. An old guitar teacher gave it to me because we didn't need it anymore. And it is just a massive, like, what, 500-page tome where it will just go... Uh, just turn to a random band, like, for example, uh, well, I've managed to open up on The Great Cat, um, <laughs> and give you a brief history of, like, that musician, then give all the singles, EPs, albums, with exactly the track listing, year it mm. came out, um, and then, like, members of the band. Yeah, it just... It's very interesting in a kind of... In the way an afternoon metal archives is interesting, you can just open to a random band and go, "Oh yeah, they sound quite good. I'll I'll look that up." Yeah, Obviously, right. completely <laughs> redundant now. <laughs> yeah, it's just the way sort of information has changed in that sense. I can barely imagine having to, you know, I mean, having to update these things if you actually wanted to stay current. With, particularly because you know metal is getting bigger and bigger, and more and more albums are being released as every year goes by. You know, like having to actually, you know, have a new one of those out every like week would be horrible or you know like it'd just be really tricky to keep up with that so you know you have to be really thankful for metal archives and i know that we both use it a lot well so. <laughs> something i'm gonna get to soon is like the the kind of idea of how accessible metal is now because mm. we're, we're fans of early death metal early extreme metal there was a time when you couldn't get that stuff for love nor money and yeah we, we have to be kind of thankful we're in a position where we can find out everything we want and easily get access to rare demos or yeah, whatever so easy to go back and check out you know if, if there's a certain bit of music that you like in metal you can go and check back exactly where it came from and see all of the influences along the way to it becoming a thing and just you know from a historical and a musical perspective that's just awesome to be able to see where all these influences come from so the next one I want to cover and this is this is completely out there uh, I was debating with my girlfriend earlier whether this even strictly counts as a metal book but I insist it does yeah, it this does. is the satanic spell book the recipes and rantings of vegan black metal chef we should point out that satanic is not spelled <laughs> as satan it's um, satan the vegan meat substitute uh, s-e-i-t-a-n yeah. <laughs> um Vegan Black Metal Chef has an amazing YouTube channel where he does completely over-the-top vegan cooking while in full corpse paint with a backing track he's recorded himself. And some awesome knives. And some knives and bowls that are <laughs> beyond comprehension. And will regularly add ingredients like frost, woods, <laughs> and spikes to his recipes. But, like, the main thing... So, I'm not vegan, but my girlfriend is. And she bought this book recently because she likes guys YouTube channel thought he's kind of fun. She now races as the best cookbook she's ever bought. Like, genuinely, this guy is a genius. He knows cooking so well. And he has a real perspective on, like... His book is about enjoying food. So he won't teach you how to... He has a very good section later on in the book about how to make salads, where it's just like, have a fucking salad, fat and salt makes it good. This book's about, <laughs> like... This book is about making tasty food. It's about mm -hmm. making fancy cooking. But how to do it, the kind of theory... 
basic hints and tips that will really help you out. But it's all done in a very tongue-in-cheek black metal way as well. Like, the presentation's amazing. But all the recipes are great. Like, they are terrible, terrible puns throughout. <laughs> I don't know if these even count as puns. The page I've turned to here is Chili of Northern Darkness, which the description <laughs> is, <laughs> The fall of mankind will have one saviour. In the desolation of the end, a burning phoenix will rise. This phoenix will smell of a spicy mixture of chipotle chili and cayenne pepper. <laughs> <laughs> and the, this is the kind of tone of it. But the actual recipes, like, if you're into cooking, this is excellent. And if you want to start cooking vegan, like, mm. it's very popular. I to remember, do remember Mel particularly mentioning to me that it had a really nice way of explaining why what you do in the cooking actually works and the theory of, like, if you add this, it makes this taste good because of this. As opposed to just telling you what to do, it sort of also tells you why that works, which, you know, you can use to make stuff yourself as well as following the recipes. So, yeah, it seems like it's a really high-quality cookbook as well as having an awesome style to it. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I don't know the real uh, name of Vegan Black Metal Chef, but Google Vegan Black Metal Chef. It'd be yeah, very easy really to find. But, yeah, I highly recommend this book. Right, this brings us to one a lot of you might possibly own. Yeah, so so this this is the physically largest, not the heaviest, that will be next, but the largest book. This is like proper A3 size, and this is um, True Norwegian Black Metal, um, a photo history of it. Uh, photos by Peter Best and edited by um, Johan Kugelberg. Um, this is like, it, there's so many photos in this that you will have seen floating around the internet. There's the classic one of um, Abath in the woods pointing at something. Uh, <laughs> there, there's quite a few ones of Abath and Fenris, which you'll definitely have seen, and Gal and people like that. Um, it's just a sort of completely becoming immersed within the black metal subculture. Um, Peter Best, the photographer, basically was interested in black metal, really interested in the subculture of it, and wanted to document it himself. He's a really um, great photographer. So he went to Norway for five weeks and then sort of went there and back several different times, met up with a huge number of black metal musicians, including Abath, Gal, Fenris, Frost, Kvarfov, Faust, Samoff, Nocturno Culto, Necro Butcher, Maniac, like all of these people. He That's talked Frost. To, <laughs> like, talked to all of these people um, and took photos of them, like was with them for their gigs and their rituals and whatever they do and stuff like that. And also got photos of the Norwegian scenery and just sort of tried to paint um, this very vivid picture of what black metal subculture is. Um, and I think it does a really solid job. Um, and it nicely sums up that black metal is simultaneously serious, hilarious and stupid and great um, with like really great music coming out of it, some really interesting personalities, and yet utterly stupid at times as well. Um, and it does have, you know, it has all the bits of, you know, your pig's heads, your spikes, your blood, your naked people covered in crow's blood who are like hung up on stage, which seems like a really boring job to me, but whatever. Um, all of that stuff interspersed with quotes from the musicians he's in talk to. I think it starts off with a Lovecraft quote, actually, which is kind of thematic. But then different quotes from different um, musicians, normally pretty short, just about what black metal sort of meant to them and what it was. Um, and, yeah, it's got all of this stuff, and it got, like, really candid bits where it's just, like, you know, black metal musicians putting on their corpse paint and, like, bathrooms <laughs> yes. after they finished with it. And, like, you know, normal Norwegian streets with just someone without a shirt and corpse paint just standing there. Uh, you know, like it sort of shows you how weird black metal was and still is, you know, in the country of Norway. 
um, and as well as pairing it for the Norwegian scenery. And there's lots of talk about how the scenery of Norway is amazing but bleak, and that sort of informs black metal sort of sonically. So it's really interesting. Uh, right at the end, it's got a bunch of interviews and excerpts from the um, Slayer magazine, which we will get to after this. Um, but yeah, like if you are interested in black metal, particularly the Norwegian scene and all of these legendary musicians, um, this is a really interesting like just snapshot of it. And the photos are really, really high quality. The photographer's really great. Yeah, they, they like it, it can't be overstated. Like the, the, these photos are absolutely beautiful. Barring the ones of Natafrost, <laughs> which are upsetting. Yeah, but you know, like, black metal is upsetting. And it, yeah. <laughs> that's the most upsetting part of it. Fat man in a bathtub covered in shit is pretty upsetting. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if you're into black metal, um, definitely look this one up. Get a snap of some of the picture, and if you like it, definitely go out and buy it. It's really, really cool. Oh, and and if you want to see a picture of Samoff um, dressed metal while his daughter runs around him in a princess costume, yes, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is, is the best photo it's, in the entire it's book. It's got that sort of humanising aspect to it, just like you know the shots of people having to you know physically put on their makeup and just being in Norwegian streets. You know, like black metal musicians have daughters. Like you just have to accept that. Yeah, it's definitely worth it if you've never had the treat of being at a gig early and seeing the black metal band at the back with their little makeup mirrors doing their makeup. Yeah, because that's yeah. the best. <laughs> right? So yeah, I think this right, there's no way to... this won't make a noise. Uh, we are now on to uh, Metallion, the Slayer magazine diaries. The, Again, the, the heaviest book, very literally. Which I'm sure Metallion would be very proud of. <laughs> it's nigh on a thousand pages. This is the history of one of the most important extreme metal zines. We'll approach this later because we're going to, but some of the books we're going to get to later, we'll touch on this. In the early days of extreme metal, we're talking late 80s, well, mid to late 80s into early 90s. Extreme metal wasn't distributed properly. It wasn't covered in any mainstream way. So the way people found music was through tape trading. Likely, if you're into metal, you've heard stuff about tape trading. This was back in the days where nothing was easy to get. The way, if you wanted to hear new music, you got a little collection of your rare tapes and you record them on a double tape deck, mm. so you got two copies, and you'd send them off to people so you get a copy of their tapes. That's how you get the early more. Like, there was a time when you could only get the first Morbid Angel album by writing them a letter. <laughs> this is not Alters of Madness. This is, um, oh, Jesus, what's it called? Whatever their, their failed yeah. first album yeah, was called, yeah. or aborted first album. Metallion um, is a character in this scene who was... Hugely influential, massively into tape trading, like very, very knowledgeable. Who's a young kid from Norway who started off, like, I think started writing um, in around 1983. And there's, there's, a, there's a photo of him in the true Norwegian black metal book as well, actually. So there, there's a, yeah. a bit of a crossover. He's very attached to the Norwegian scene. Um, and he got into metal the usual route coming up through Fresh in the early 80s. Then at the dawn of death metal, he got into all this tape trading and started the Slayer magazine um, fanzine. Uh, like, it's something he kind of put, had a little typewriter and put together by sticking in pictures at home. It's all sorts of reviews of albums, um, kind of uh, live reviews, and then just, yeah, just talking about metal in general, like lots of interviews as well. Like, but really, really. It's kind of like a childlike ferocity to all of it. It's all done in a very haphazard manner. But it's, it's really interesting. And this this is a collection of basically huge and huge amounts of cutouts from that zine. 
narrated by Metallian. So he'll talk about each era of the magazine. I think they they did like twenty volumes of the uh, Slayer magazine, and he and before every before we get into every volume and all his bizarre clippings and everything, you get a little two page summary of his feelings at the time. What what like where he was with metal at that point. And of course, fucking confusing name because it's called Slayer. Like, yeah. I, I remember the first time I ever came across it, a long, long time ago, being really confused because I then thought that, like, well, why does Slayer have a magazine which seems to talk about all this, like, weird metal, which I don't know anything about? So, the reason for that is the the uh, zine is named after the film Slayer from 1982, a uh, slasher horror movie. Oh, right. Which, which, and he said at the time it was helpful because at the same point, Slayer the band just started getting big as well, so they yeah, had double yeah. credibility. <laughs> and yeah, this is before Slayer broke into the massive, yeah, they're uh, super huge like they are today. Yeah, beasts they are. Um, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating package. It's really well put together. It has like forward diarrhea of, uh, <laughs> but but we get there's forwards by Thomas Lindbergh, Chris Reifert of uh, Autopsy, uh, Fenris. Stephen O'Malley of Sun and False Hammer. Mm. Um, I know False Hammer only have like three songs, but I love it. Um, Eric from Wattain, whose intro is awful, but yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. but it's Eric from Wattain, so of course it's him being an arsehole. <laughs> but the, the, this has a really interesting narrative as well, because this young guy in Norway, growing up with extreme music, so he goes through death metal, gets into that, befriends a lot of characters from the death metal scene, such as Dead from Mayhem, um, and then watches the rise of Norwegian black metal. So also becomes very friendly with Euronymous of of Mayhem. And yeah, because there's, there's a bunch of excerpts from the Slayer magazine in the back of the true Norwegian black metal book, alongside a whole bunch of photos of Dead and Euronymous and all the sort of Mayhem guys and stuff like that. So like his life is just fascinating. The sort of things that he saw happen. Yeah, but but this is like the the Italian Diaries takes a really dark turn because halfway through. He has this has to deal with a load of his friends dying and like mm. actually it's a very real look at what it must have been like being inside all that nonsense going on in the black metal scene yeah. in the early nineties. There's there's a really there's a really uh, like I know it just came across as really real. I remember just opening the book randomly and turning this an interview with uh, the main guy of Olver, sort of just like in his early black metal days, reacting quite recently to uh, just gone. Garm, yeah, yeah. Uh, reacting to uh, the murder of Euronymous and just like going on this kind of vitriol fueled rant of calling uh, Varg a total coward and just being, and it was it was just very real because he just seemed genuinely furious and yeah, it, yeah. it wasn't like he wasn't pulling any punches with it. And Metallium's writing doesn't pull any punches. Like uh, Femrys's. Uh, intro is really great because he talks about how Metallion like just wrote a horrible review of his first band <laughs> and, it, and it gave him this real fire that he had to get better because Metallion never pulled any punches with his writing he's a very direct reviewer if you were shit he'd call you shit like <laughs> which is an intense way of writing but definitely served a purpose at the time but yeah if you've got any interest in going back like knowing more about the tape trading scene this and a book we'll cover later are the best summaries of what that was like mm. and and just what getting into extreme metal 20, 30 years ago must have been like. Um, so, it's not quite relevant to the set, but we're going to be a cool way to... Uh, it's, it's kind of relevant to Metallion, in a way. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to play from one of the CDs that's kind of relevant to all of this. Uh, this is the Swedish death metal uh, compilation, 
we're going to play Nirvana 2002's Morning. More about the Swedish death metal at the end of the episode. We're now onto the third set of books. These are the 
the proper metal histories. These aren't um, following one band or anything. This is following a scene, or in the case of one of these, just the entire history of metal. The first one I'll start with, um, it, it's an interesting one. Uh, this is Choosing Death, the improbable history of death and grindcore by Albert uh, Mudrain, uh, with introduction by John Peel. Now, the best thing about this book has to be said, is the two-page introduction by John Peel. The introduction is really, really good. But, it, 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 like, it's just, if you know anything about John Peel, old radio DJ, who I didn't quite realise until reading this book, played such a huge part in death metal becoming a thing. Mm, mm. Champion bands like uh, Napalm Death, Bolt Thrower, to, Carcass. Yeah, yeah talking about playing, like, Bolt, um, Napalm Death in particular and Carcass, like, on the radio. And people were like, what the fuck are you playing? He's like, no, this stuff's really good. I was like, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it, it's truly brilliant. And and if you want more information about that, I want to find out a bit more, get the Groin Madness at the BBC compilation. It's all the sessions he recorded for the radio of these really extreme very kind of sloppy early demos of all these bands, like including Bolt for a Carcass, Napalm Death. Um... And there's this weird stuff in the beginning of the BBC as well, because I remember showing you this clip where um, Napalm Death um, are on a children's music TV show with Craig Charles, where like he interviews Lee Dorian about like their lyrics and stuff like that, and then they end up like playing live on this kid's music TV show. It's one of the most surreal things I've ever watched. But again, awesome for getting bands like Napalm Death out there so people know who they are. Yeah, it's just... This is a really good kind of love letter to the the kind of DIY ethos and punk enthusiasm of Mm. the early... Like the late 80s, early 90s UK metal scene. And this is where this book starts is... It starts off following the story of like Napalm Death... Post like metal getting quite big and overblown with new waves of British heavy metal and thrash, we'll get down to like Napalm Death introducing just speed to the nth degree mm. in this super punk kind of way. But there's a lot of um, a lot of the early story here centers on Mitch Harris, the drummer of uh, Napalm Death, famous complete madman, super fast if not super tight drummer. <laughs> uh, like, in the introduction as well, uh, John Peel was talking about how go to these gigs with, like, Extreme Noise Terror and later Napalm Death. And, you know, if anyone plays a song over, like, 20 seconds, they start yelling at them, like, you guys are prog wankers or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you've got to be super tight, super fast, or you're nothing. Yeah, so, like, this starts... And it's brilliant because this, this is the perfect place to start seeing the birth of both grind and death metal because you get these two kind of splitting narratives. So we get the English scene... Which will move into Bolt for our carcass, like from Extreme Noise, Australia, and Napalm Death. And as you know, like Napalm Death continue along, get a load of history about that. Um, then you move over to America and we get the start of that. So, like the early incarnations of death in all its various forms, like, mm-hmm. like Mantis originally or something yeah, else, I think that's right. name. And then, like, Repugnance, their, their brief bit of history where they just got that tiny amount of recording together. But you listen to it now. That album sounds like it should have been recorded five years later. It's mm. fucking excellent. Mm. Really. Especially like a song like Maggots in Your Coffin is just excellent. But yeah, loads of stuff like that. And then Terrorizer, uh, all that kind of... Yeah, just kind of proto-death metal that kind of lent into death metal. Then you get more in-depth into the actual scene getting going, the birth of like Cannibal Corpse and so on. A brief move back towards the end to the Swedish death metal. And then... A kind of final summarising of how death metal spread out around the world and uh, influence all these other things, like name, like especially bands like Slipknot, who have got 
huge amounts of mainstream success while having a quite major death metal influence in their yeah, sound. Yeah, definitely. And it's a really good summary in history of that. There's loads... That, however much you know, there's something in here you haven't heard. Like, I do take real issue with how it's written, though. It, it The whole way through, it feels like it's trying to be condensed for no reason. Like, every chapter, there's a story you're like, oh, that sounds like a good story, and it's never really dealt with in detail. Mm. There's lots of introducing names with never uh, saying who the guy is or who he went on to be. So it's kind of... It's written as if you really know your stuff. And as someone who... I know, I pride myself on knowing quite a lot of this. Even I have found myself reading this and checking the internet every five seconds, going mm. like, well, who's that guy? Like, <laughs> it's, it's a kind of very loving tale, but I don't know why it needed to be like 250 pages. It would have been much better as 400 pages and actually go in depth. Like, I don't know why Albert's felt the need to be so brief with the whole thing. And that, that I don't know, I felt was really the kind of an issue with it. But if you're interested in this, this is the best summary I've found of all those scenes like put together, that kind of that history of extreme metal. Well, I say extreme metal, death metal and grindcore specifically. Mm. This is a really, really good summary of it. It's just written a style I found slightly annoying. Also, as a section at the end, which I am not quite sure of the point of, where he he kind of uses it to recommend bands from like the years uh where does he start? 1987 through to 2003. But the problem is, the way he does it is just basically list every famous death metal band <laughs> in that time period where, like, who released an album, even if they're quite... Like, a couple of the albums he lists, I'm trying to find a good example, aren't even particularly good. Yeah, so 1997, he's listed Dis- Dismember's Death Metal. Dismember's Death Metal is a really boring Dismember <laughs> album. That was far from the most interesting release in 1997. Yeah. But he just listed Brutal Truth's release, DSI, Dismember, Obituary, Suffocation, Vital Remains. There's nothing in there that I wouldn't have already heard of. And if you're into Death yeah, Metal, you yeah. know all those bands. Like, maybe Vital Remains are slightly more underground than the rest, but I don't know, there must have been more interesting releases that year. Like, yeah, it just... It seems to be weirdly surface level a lot of the time, and I don't know quite why he's chosen that style. Mm. Um, yeah, so... It's it definitely worth a look. It just... It could be better. So, the next book we want to get onto, I think, is the most recently released book of the whole lot we're yeah, covering. Yeah, must be. So, yeah, this is um, Andrew O'Neill's A History of Heavy Metal. Now, Andrew O'Neill is um, fantastic. Um, heavy metal, occult, transvestite... Tran- Transvestite. I've forgotten how to speak. Uh, Transvestite occultist comedian um, who's done a comedy show based on the history of heavy metal, which we've seen, I think, three times, I think. Maybe we see, more. We, I've, I've seen yeah. four times, including the one where he was so early he couldn't stop puking. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's a fantastic show. He's really, really entertaining. Um, and this is that in book form. And the thing that like really struck me about it, particularly in contrast to the show, is like this is actually really interesting from an academic perspective as well, particularly from thinking about how mental became a thing so obviously Black Sabbath there's a whole chapter devoted to just how awesome Black Sabbath are within this and how this came from bands beforehand he spends a while thinking about the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and how this drive to getting heavier and heavier with you know the birth of um, guitar distortion with Ray Davies slashing the back of his amp from the kinks you know how all that stuff happened and how rock music eventually built up to heavy metal um, and at the same time as being, you know, like academically genuinely really interesting and a really nice sort of summary of some of the stuff that was going on, it's also really funny. 
Yes. He's got a great writing style. So we should state, like, Andrew O'Neill is a really decent comedian in his own right. Like, mm. more recently he's done a lot of stuff about metal, but I've been a fan for quite a few years, and his older shows didn't really have all that much about metal in there. He'd throw in an old joke about it because he was always very clearly a metalhead. But um, recently, as Rob mentioned, he did The History of Heavy Metal as a full live show. And as a live show, it was a kind of multimedia thing with, like, kind of projector backing. And it was a very, very funny show in which he did quite a nice job of covering the yeah, very yeah. The history of metal, but it was mainly jokes. It was mainly a comedy show. The thing I didn't expect in this book, and I haven't finished yet because I only got a copy of it last week, well, Monday, I think. Mm. Um, this book isn't like the show. It's not It's not trying to be funny. Like Most pages will have one good joke on it, yeah. but mostly it's... It's it's a history. It's and it's really in depth, and it's him trying to flesh out the whole narrative he built. So essentially, the narrative he went for in the live show, and he sort of spoke a bit about the early years and goes into a bit more detail in proto metal in this book. But it was starting from Sabbath's first album being that is the that is the birth of heavy metal. Yeah, anything before that's proto metal. Anything after can be metal. Which then slides into new wave of British heavy metal. Then the other big landmark point he mentions is the appearance of Venom and mm. Venom introducing Extremity. From that, the he does a the picture he has is the uh, <laughs> the Pink Floyd album cover of the, the uh, Dark Side of the Moon, the prism splitting light. Except the prism is Venom splitting metal into all its various subgenres, including what is a uh, like, cradle or whatever, whatever the fuck Cradle of Filth is now. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the twenty given subgenres. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's a really funny live show. I think he's still touring it at the moment, so if you get a chance to see it, it's really well worth it. The book is completely different to this. It's just like. He's doing that by flushing out so many steps. Like, I've only got up to New Wave of British Heavy Metal at this point, but he takes a huge amount of time in this book to talk about all the kind of proto-metal, um, mm, the mm. kind of uh, bands like like Cream, um, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, all these bands that definitely weren't metal bands, but had the slightest inklings of it. Yeah, the kind of introduction yeah. of heavy core patterns. Or... And even going back to, you know, the song Helter Skelter by the Beatles, which is a point he's made loads of times, is like, you know, really not that far off a metal song, and yet it was made by, you know, the biggest pop band ever. And that, that particularly that bit, like how it goes back through all of this rock music and how metal became a thing, and, you know, the use of the term heavy metal and stuff and how it was originally derogatory and then became sort of a badge of pride amongst metal bands... Uh, that's why I think this is really interesting to people who like are just interested in the idea of heavy metal, not even in the music. If you like any of the rock music or just want to know where all this like weird noise that we bang on about came from, this is a really nice example and it paints this really nice narrative at the same time as fleshing it out really well and giving us background on some of the interesting characters who were involved in it. It'll just give you a good snapshot into how this musical style developed, how it evolved over time. Yeah, yeah. Just to give you a hint of some of the, the writing style, this is in the introduction to Black Sabbath, and I absolutely love this passage. And lo, it did come to pass, upon the blasted furnaces of the blackest country, three wise men and a holy fool did find their paths entwined. In the beginning was the word, and the word was blues, and earth, and the earth was without form and void, and actually it turned out the name earth was already taken, but they managed to get a few gigs on the pub circuit anyway. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to do little segments, the one bit I will read is um, the first sentence of this book, which is one of the fir- best first sentences of any book I've ever read. Um, well, there's a small part about the um, Big Bang. And then there's, there are two types of people in the world. People who like heavy metal and dicks. 
And that is a wonderful opening, which I've since repeated to a lot of people who don't like heavy metal, and they've really liked that opening as well. And as Andrew Neil puts in the in the intro as well, like you might not like heavy metal, but he can be very persuasive. <laughs> like I do have a few issues with this book. I don't know quite why he's done this. Is he does a lot of foreshadowing, but goes into too much detail in the foreshadowing, and then when he gets to the point, like say a chapter later. He just repeats what he said. Like, there's a lot of bits where he will near enough do the same explanation of a story mm. twice. And I don't know quite why he's gone for this style. It's it's kind of written like... I guess it'd be... It's almost written like a book you'd want to read over a really long time, like dipping in and out of. But it's quite an interesting story. I kind of wanted to power through the whole whole thing in one go. So it, like, I do feel there was some weird repetition in there. Also, I take mm. massive issue, and the book we're going to get to next completely flips <laughs> this on its head. Talking about Black Sabbath, he sort of goes on about the first four albums being supremely important, and then says that they kind of died off afterwards. Oh, which is as not too sure about that. Uh, yeah, as people who know Sabbath well will know, that means he doesn't put any weight on Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, which yeah, I'd yeah, argue which, is which one, of the most, one of the best. I'd say one of the most important albums of the seventies. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean. Maybe hyperbole on my part, but like, it cannot be denied that album. So, so, so has so much influence, and as even, even if it didn't, like, it is just, is one of the finest moments of Sabbath, like from beginning to end. Yeah, and yeah, so especially and like that's that's following up the saying first for a perfect like, Master of Reality has got some duff moments. Master of Reality is far from yeah, the top Master... of that pile of early albums. Yeah, yeah, um, and then and then volume four, I would say, isn't perfect either. Um, it's got some interesting I stuff. I really on it. like Volume Four, but yeah, I, I can give you this two yeah. or three moments. But, 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 but then even then, I mean, this is turning into a really in-depth discussion of Black Sabbath's discography. But there is a lot of that here. But I, I, I think that um, there's some really interesting moments on albums like Sabotage. Sabotage, as well. is Sabotage really has got decent. some great songs on it, uh, and a lot of weirdness, but some great stuff as well. Yeah, because I'd argue if you're going to make the kind of point about early Sabbath. Um, it's six albums, then there's the tail off. Like, mm. people aren't so into Never Say Die or Technical Essence. Yeah, Technical like, Essence, yeah, so especially. And then, yeah. and, I mean, he does make the point that they come back with Dio and then do some really solid work. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's very different to Original Sabbath, but, you know, Dio's Heaven's also really cool. Unfortunately, probably can't say a hell of a lot more because, again, both of us are only about halfway through this book because it only came out. Yeah. Two weeks ago, and that was slow. Yeah, I'd, I'd say like the writing style is really, really entertaining. Um, mm. Definitely, if you if he's playing anywhere near you, doing some comedy, definitely go see him. Um, yep. Is over a band, the men of men for nothing. They're really fun. They're a steampunk Victorian punk band thing. They're really entertaining, and he'll often do a comedy warm up set for them. Yeah, Try to yeah. check them out if they're near you. I've seen them a couple of times, and they're, they're really fun. Um, not quite metal, but there's quite a few riffs in there where you can tell Andrew Neil is desperately trying to write uh, a metal and, song. <laughs> and, and there, there is a song on the first album that does feature him doing properly guttural death metal. Yeah, vocals. there's a song about them going on holiday to Margate um, and meeting Cthulhu at the beach, who kills Grandma. So you, you've got to listen to that. It's so good. Yeah, and as I say, the genuinely laugh out mo- loud moments. This book really, yeah, he's still really funny. It's just he's clearly trying to. Say the story as well mm. and for all the kind of uh, criticism it, it, it does seem very well written I'm really looking forward to finishing it off yeah, same okay this brings us to well two books left and these are both I would say if you've got any interest in these particular genres of metal are just must buys they're utterly essential some of the best kind of non-fiction books I've ever read the first one I get to unfortunately uh, 
just in the build-up to this, Rob didn't have time to read this on top of a couple of others I lent him, is uh, Mean Mean Deviation, uh, Four Decades of Progressive Heavy Metal by Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner is an amazingly weird um, individual. He does a lot of reviews for Decibel magazine, like Mm. very interesting reviewer, well worth reading his stuff at all times. He has a very strange philosophy on metal, as far as I can tell, of... He doesn't really like a band ever repeating himself. He's all about progression and bands moving forward and experimenting. And this book is a total love letter to progressive... This isn't... like, And he makes a very big distinction of this early on. This isn't progressive metal in that pile of dream theatre clones, progressive metal. Mm. This is progressive metal as in those albums where bands tried something weird. This is like... Rather than, say, a kind of Symphony X album, it's more... Uh, Grand Declaration of War by Mayhem, like mm. a massively well, and, divisive. Yeah, sort of progressive. Obviously, is a really weird term, both in rock and metal, because it's sort of used to mean something that is different and pushes the boundaries and incorporates new influences, does something weird. But then it, you know, it, it ends up with bands that sound like King Crimson or Dream Theater or Rush or something like that. That is now the progressive genre, and if you copy what they do, that makes you progressive, which is sort of counter to the whole idea. Because you know, like bands like Celtic Frost were progressive because they were pushing the boundaries of extremity to a level that no one thought you could. And you know, albums like Into the Pandemonium are fucking weird, so they count as progressive. Um, I've, I've heard Mirai from uh, Sai. I think I might have mentioned this before, making the argument the Cold Lake is an is a progressive album because Cold Lake <laughs> is essentially a hair metal album but with Tom G. Warriors vocals and guitar <laughs> solos which are not hair metal so like essentially yeah, there's I never going to be another Cold Lake I, I can see that Maybe, I hate it but <laughs> I, mean, I think it's got its moments but it's quite an unpopular opinion um, yeah. I, the video of Cherry Orchards is fucking great you, well worth a watch yeah, yeah. Watch it. But, um, but yeah progressive is a really interesting term so it's cool to see a book like take that perspective and, and it's addressing it in a way i really enjoy like it definitely appealed to me if, if for credibility's sake as well uh throughout the book and the cover and so on is all artwork by a way of voivod uh, as we mentioned last episode yeah. drummer of voivod does all the voivod artwork he's done some very weird pictures yeah this, for this the, book. the cover of this book is really weird but so, you know progressive metal in particular is weird and he's uh, all these yeah. internal yeah, yeah it's, it's weird like sort of space things aliens <laughs> something yeah he's just general strange spiky looking things yeah. and forward by steve wilson this is a forward by steve wilson actually i could have covered this early in the opeth book because near enough these things overlap steve wilson talks about how as a young child he was really into metal got into a uh, new wave of british heavy metal but then got more into, into prog and started thinking metal was really childish and kind of just wrote it off and didn't listen for years and years until at a gig a journalist who had recently interviewed Opeth gave him a copy of Opeth Still Life and I think maybe Destroy a Raise Improved by Meshuggah. Oh yeah, And yeah. Steve Wilson gets saying, I got, I got to see these all the time so I just chucked these in the back of the van and ignored them. And eventually a few weeks later at a gig while they're sound checking he put on Still Life through the, uh, the sort of sound system was like, oh my god, like, metal's actually really interesting. <laughs> and, as many of you all know, this would lead, this led to an email exchange between Michael and Steve Wilson, which resulted in Steve Wilson um, producing the next three albums mm. and, and adding vocals and keyboards to yeah. the, the classics of Blackwater Park, Damnation and Deliverance. Yeah, leading to like a lifelong friendship between the two of them, which is really awesome. Yeah, yeah, and future collaborations like Storm Corrosion, yeah, yeah. which I, I thought was excellent, but it definitely... Uh, 
an interesting. Uh, yeah, I need to spend more time with it. Um, it never really, it never clicked for me, and I should probably listen to it more. But yeah, so it's, it's definitely something really interesting. Like I don't expect to get all progressive things. And no, I, no, I, I really shouldn't because you know they're pushing things. A, a point weird. made by this book is exactly along those lines. So this book has a really interesting uh, kind of journey to it as well, where. It starts off um, with kind of a personal history of uh, Jeff's involvement in getting into metal, and mainly a big love letter to Voivod, who, as we were speaking about at length last episode, this massive piece of um, fresh metal history, but like in this super weird angle. Yeah, taking a genre which is like often sort of, you know, degenerates into Slayer or Metallica clones or something and just doing it in such a way that makes it incredibly atmospheric, incredibly weird, weird song structures, weird chords. But to back up his point of uh, kind of constantly wanting bands to evolve, the album he mostly focuses on is Voivod's sixth album, Angel Rat. Because it's the point where Voivod fans fell off because Voivod tried something completely different. Yeah, yeah. And Jeff Wagner was talking about the importance of bands doing this, the kind of throwing caution to the wind and just trying something completely new. Because there's the point where Voivod lost all the headiness and tried doing like a kind of a strange rock album. And it's an album that massively divides fans to this day. So after that, we get into an interesting kind of like history of progressive music so we go through the kind of the 60s scene and with arguably one of the first progressive heavy metal songs uh uh there's there's a quote here from uh, robert fripp about king crimson's 21st century yeah. schizoid man for me it was intelligent heavy metal it's very hard to play it was so hard to play it was terrifying but heavy <laughs> metal equally misunderstood and maligned as progressive rock was not even yet to mark history's pages like it, 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 this is really cool this is like and then Robert Fripps' day still says that's a, a heavy metal song. But mm. as we move from that, we all... Obviously... Uh, j- yeah, just at that point, if you haven't heard it, go and check out... I mean, check out 21st Century Schizo Mag. Oh, God, yeah. amazing you. song. Uh, but also check out um, the cover of Swedish Shining. Their mm. version of 21st Century Schizoid Man. Because it takes a song that you don't think could get any more extreme and makes it a hundred times more extreme. Oh, my God, it's upsetting, but wonderful. It's really good. It's definitely worth checking out. And from that point, we move into the obvious start point of heavy metal as brought by Andrew O'Neill, Sabbath. And the point he makes, and this is so much at odds with um, what Andrew O'Neill was saying, was essentially Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath, first heavy metal album ever. Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, first progressive heavy metal album ever. Because yeah, it yeah. took the, the kind of tropes and things they've been building for four albums, turned them on their head, threw caution to the wind... Like, in Who Are You, bringing in weird electronic elements, bringing in an orchestra or a string section for Spiral Architect. Spiral yeah. I, mean, I think I remember something with Michael Ackerfeld where he was talking about that as his favourite Sabbath song of all time. I think he's right. I, I think it's utter, like an utterly brilliant piece of music. But just saying like this, um, this kind of turning stuff on his head. Mm. I've had an argument with my girlfriend about this where she refuses to accept a band can create the progressive version of a genre if they also created the genre. No, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm I don't sure agree. I but, but because obviously, like the first few Sabbath albums have this very sort of distinctive style to them, and I mean, like most metal bands don't sound anything like Sabbath, and most of that, I think, well, a lot of that has to do with Bill Ward's drumming, actually. But uh, you know, they then sort of turned all the rules that they created on their head in Sabbath, bloody Sabbath, and did the same stuff, but then subverted it in weird ways of all these extra elements and slightly different song structures and different ways of doing stuff. So. 
No, I think I think I think Sabbath managed subverted themselves in a way there. Yeah, and what will quickly appeal to Rob is the the mm. next section following on from Sabbath, and many of you probably have already guessed where this band where this will be going in terms of bands. Is a huge section on Rush. Yeah, I'm an enormous Rush fan. Rush are one of those bands which properly got me into music when I was younger. They're one of those bands which just like finally sort of kindled that fire of like, God, this is exactly what I want from music. Um, one of my bands that my dad listened to quite a lot, so when I was really young, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And they're one of the things which really got me into metal because there's bits where Rush are really heavy, um, and yet they're always complex and weird, and they're always like weird, nerdy songs about spacemen or something like that. Um, but they're great so yeah oh yeah I've just noticed the desk we're sitting at in Rob's room is sandwiched between a Black Sabbath Sabbath bloody Sabbath (laughs) poster and a Rush poster (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's weird yeah and so moving into that we get the classic trio of um, progressive metal which is Queensryche uh, Dream Mm. Theatre and Face Warning I was about to say the other one Um, (laughs) and, and like sort of explaining the kind of influence of these three bands taking heavy metal on that very bombastic, uh, technically brilliant, vocally kind of ludicrous mm, highs, mm. and and what spawned after that, the kind of, the great kind of uh, wave of Dream Theatre clones. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's a section that wasn't quite so interesting because I've never had so much of an interest in that bit of the genre. But what comes next is my, like, obsession. We get into the early kind of bands taking death and thrash metal to weird yeah, places yeah. so there's a huge amount of bands like watchtower and sieges even um bands doing supremely technical music but they, in ways that don't make sense like mm. i think watchtower described as uh screaming in 11 8 <laughs> uh, and like there's so much brilliant stuff there and there are a lot of bands really forgotten and then that morphs into probably my absolute favourite genre ever, this briefly lived thing called technical metal, which was like basically an atheist, cynic, mm. later death, mm. pestilence. Like these bands are just some of the greatest like experiments with jazz extremity and melodicism and it like Yeah, pairing it into something which doesn't feel like it's shoehorned in, like really genuinely taking these influences and putting them together. Yeah, it's really some of the most interesting stuff in like particularly like atheist and later death and that it's just yeah it's just fascinating to listen to and yet still manages to you know keep you there with this extreme like brutality to the music and really harsh vocals and yet still has this amazing technicality and amazing sense to you know drift between different emotions in your audience which is awesome yeah um <coughs> oh pardon me um the thing i want to get to is jeff wagner's writing style <coughs> is kind of hilarious. Like, <laughs> the man is very pretentious. Like, he takes his music very seriously. This does lead, and this is the right kind of segment for this band, leads to a review of Nocturnus' uh, se- second album, mm. Thresholds, in which he describes it as, Thresholds remains the ultimate in freezing anti-groove. <laughs> <laughs> which is a statement that means literally nothing. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea what that's meant to mean. <laughs> but yeah... From that point, he then expands out and like to kind of finish the book is him going through hundreds of the newer bands coming out. They're like because this was written quite a few years ago, he is he's picked out bands that have gone on to be massive. So 
this is just after Tall Poppy Syndrome came out by Leprous. Oh, yeah. And he points yeah. out Leprous being this super interesting oh, little... This really, is before really cool. they got involved with Ishan. Like, oh, wow. He, like, this guy knows his shit so this, much. This is when they're, what, like 16 or something? Yeah, this is when they're like children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's an amazing section at the end where he goes through hundreds of bands. Oh, yeah, we've got Ved Burns on there there. Yeah, which yeah. became Virus, yeah. Peckerton, uh, Ishan's weird yeah. project. Uh, Frantic Bleep, who, for those that know... Very strange band. <laughs> um, yeah, just like he talks at length because this is, this is a long rant about the 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 wave of the weird Norwegian music, which we mm. we've covered at length ourselves as well. Um, yeah, we've still got part three of that to do, haven't we? I think. Yeah, yeah. At some point, we'll come back to it, which will probably be vaguely inspired by uh, mm. by this. And yeah, and obviously he moves into discussion of really important bands like Opeth, Meshuggah. Basically, any band you think of as being extremely progressive metal that's had influence up to about 2005, he's covered at some length in here. And and some of the bands he throws in it are so avant-garde and weird. Mm. And he will cover stuff that didn't work as well. Like, stuff that just completely missed the mark. Like, he is. it's just really celebrating people trying something new. And if that's something you respect in metal, this, this book is really exciting. It will give you so many recommendations. I pick it up every couple of months to just go, oh, let's check something else out from this. Because mm. there's so many mm. bands I've got into since, like... Stuff like uh, Solfal or Gononish, which I've never heard mentioned elsewhere, but are really, really interesting. And Jeff Wagner's just found it all because <laughs> he won't listen to a band repeating himself. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think that brings us to our yeah. our final one of the lot, and this is possibly the most important metal book ever made, just because it's fucking excellent and it actually had an effect which is mm, beyond mm. comprehension this is Swedish Death Metal by Daniel Ekaroff we played a song from Nirvana 2002 earlier before we get into what the book's like what the real content of the book is it should be stated this book was brought out as a massive kind of um, collection of interviews and a history of the genre and how it came together and it spawned that thing of bands sounding like Swedish death metal bands again. Mm. Like the this book being released was released to like parties of them getting bands back together to play live. Nirvana two thousand two, you just heard, just released a couple of demos and disappeared back in the day. They reformed for this, and then there was enough interest. They went on tour. They played like Maryland Death Fest and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was so fucking cool. And just like reading this book and um, this first bought the CD over today as well. Just listening to some of that. And when I was list- uh, reading it, going back and listening to old albums I've got, like Left Hand Path and um, the old Carnage things and Unleashed and Grave and all that sort of stuff. It just makes me like just love the whole thing of the Swedish death metal. Like so much of it, even for demos, is so well done. Um, and like, just makes me remember why I love that guitar tone so much. I'm <laughs> yes. so happy that I've got one of the Boss HM2 pedals because it's just such a good sound. Yeah, like obviously, those who know Swedish death metal, it's totally related to the Boss HM2 pedal. But this book is a real look at how the Swedish death metal movement got going. Um, so, as many of you know, late 80s, American death metal really kicked off. Now, a bit after that, Sweden, a country pretty much not known for metal, but mm. two bands, um, <laughs> like who we've actually covered at length, yeah. um, started producing all these kids wanting to make music. So the bands that really kicked this off, actually free strictly, Europe got massive. Yeah, um, yeah, it's really, really interesting to hear about Europe. 
So they and prove to Swedish kids they could be from Sweden and make music and be successful. Mm. Following that, we have Candlemass, who proved you could be successful making heavy as fuck music. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot about them in there. And then finally, Bathory, who proved you could make properly extreme metal yeah, and get world yeah. renowned. And then what happens is this really interesting story of a bunch of four, like, you know, 12 to 18 year olds picking up guitars and trying to make, trying to do what they're doing on the continent, in, like, sorry, not on the continent, uh, over in America, um, but then taking it in their own weird direction. So you don't know the difference between Swedish death metal and American death metal. American death metal tends to be faster, more technical, more brutal. Swedish death metal seems to rely on atmosphere a lot more. It's, mm. it's got mm. more in common with the burgeoning Norwegian black metal scene that will follow very much piggyback on the back of the Swedish death metal movement. And the, yeah, the thing that, as you mentioned, feels like that's really fascinating about this is that it is just a bunch of kids trying to do a thing that they love. And they're all just sitting around like, okay, we're going to make an album of something. And then they just do. They just go and make it. And like so many of these groups of kids make stuff. And the thing that really stands out to me is how much of it's really good. Yeah. Like Nirvana 2002, much like Vader, who we played earlier, that is one of the best fucking demos you're going to hear. Like, yeah, yeah. That is so good for a band who didn't have any real budget. So the interesting thing is you've got this kind of dichotomy of a struggle here with... So these are kids playing extreme music in Sweden. No one wanted to host them. No one wanted to be near <laughs> these kids. The, the kids are all kind of ostracised and trying to find their own way in the world where they'll, they'll have these kind of regular things of having these parties where they'll like break into a train station at midnight, <laughs> drink a load of beers they've somehow got hold of and with their little portable tape players and mm. players and like have fucking parties in a subway station beating the crap out of each other to, <laughs> to like fucking early morbid angel yeah some very interesting pictures of immolation came to play and got invited <laughs> along with them and <laughs> standing around looking kind of awkward because they're all about 10 years older <laughs> but yeah the other side of it is the swedish government also as much as like a lot of local establishments pub wasn't wouldn't put them on because they're too young to get in so they couldn't play live the swedish government had a grant where they would give money to kids trying to make music so they would pay mm. you know couple hundred quid for kids to get demos recorded so all these kids who otherwise would have no ability to record like remember this is late 80s early 90s home recording is dreadful at this mm, stage mm. could get into studios and record these demos they clearly like in a lot of cases weren't ready to record and you get this amazing wave of youthful enthusiasm and the book goes through the kind of slowly building up to finally getting some live mm. gigs and eventually um breaking out and becoming a known scene and again like listening back as well you can hear so many musicians um on these early swedish death metal demos and albums which are at the very very edge of their playing ability <laughs> yes can just play the stuff that they're playing you know i, I relate to this personally of being able to just <laughs> about to play stuff um but in a lot of cases like you can just feel the energy from stuff like that and the desire and the will to you know do something creative and interesting and like there's some really cool stuff that's been made with people right at the edge of their ability where, oh, yeah. like, they might not be playing as technically perfect as a lot of American bands were at the time but you can sense the passion and the enthusiasm and everything else is there all the songwriting is really solid so it just sounds great much like with uh, Choosing Death um, it has that real punk DIY influence and it is a mm. punk influence on this as well like um, 
That was one of the interesting bits at the beginning of the book, actually. It really goes into the punk history within Scandinavia. It's yes. about like, anti-Semics and stuff like that. And all of how that influenced death metal, not only in musically, but in the sense of how you go out and make music and how you record it and how you sort it out yourself. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Because uh, I think that's something that's you know, often forgotten, how important punk was in creating death metal, which is yeah. now very, very different from punk. But it's... Still got those influences there. Yeah. Uh, the thing we haven't stated enough here is Daniel Ekarov, the way he's put this book together is absolutely incredible. Like, mm. the effort he put into doing this is amazing. He took years going around finding so many people from the scene. Like, he talks to all these really important musicians, gets their their take on how things were. Like, like getting the guys from Entomb, guys from Grave, guys from Unleashed. And then, then guys from these like projects like Nirvana, Nirvana 2002, like... Or ones that didn't even like get noticed afterwards, you know, Mephisto, Mephisto, sorry, yeah, um, yeah. Obscurity, Corpse, like these these random little projects that just did something very interesting and like a brief flash of brilliance for four songs and are never to be heard of again. And at the beginning of the book, he uh, very explicitly talks about how this for him is this very sort of personal history of death metal because he was really into it at the time and loved all of it, and he's going through the bands which meant a lot to him. And yet, at the same time, this book is supremely detailed. And yeah, covers yeah. So much. So, I mean, uh, you know, he's really good and upfront and talking about how, you know, he will miss out some bands that you might think are great or something like that. And this is really his take on it. But at the same time, he covers so much and in, like, really exquisite detail with reference back to the people who were there. You know, there's... You know, I think that one of the quotes on it from Nicky Anderson was something like, "Oh yeah, he helped me remember a bunch of the stuff that I'd forgotten from the same time." So it's it's so well done and so always related back to the people who were there. So it has this real genuine, you know, sense to it, as well as you know the authority of people who actually lived through it. Yeah, yeah, and I think the thing that can't be overstated enough with this is the the interest of it being all kids. Like it's it's very young people trying to do this, like. The American scene, no one was quite that young. They were all 18 and above, whereas... Yeah, on, on a left-hand path, Nicky Anderson was 17. And, and Nicky Anderson, oh, yeah. the, the drummer of Entombed, was this kind of amazing character in the scene. Yeah, who, yeah. Like, the first Dismember album, they weren't good enough to play a solo, so Nicky <laughs> Anderson came to play all the leads. And, and the second Entombed album, we discovered from his book... All the vocals of Nicky Anderson because he ended up falling out with LG Petrov and it briefly kicks him out yeah, of the band. Yeah, yeah, that bit I remember being quite sad reading quotes from different people on his fallout with LG Petrov. But yeah, it's amazing to see which people were so fundamental to the scene and just like revealing that for all the sort of interviews that he's done as well as just the sort of histories of the bands. Yeah, and the other thing with this is unlike the Slayer magazine, because it sticks in Swedish death metal, Swedish death metal is always a scene that took itself less seriously. Mm. We don't have we like you see how they kind of all these bands interacted with the early uh Norwegian black metal bands like like Entombed were friends with Mayhem in their very early incarnation, but you don't get into all the crap going on in Norway and Sweden never had that kind of horrible collapse. If anything, it just gradually became more accepted. Yeah. Um yeah, so it is it's actually has a very nice arc and, and the end is this super positive thing where he leaves the story partway through and it's like but then I'm going to do a big segment where I talk about all the big bands from, well, not even big, just bands he feels were important in Sweden, where he just mm. is kind of, 
much like the A to Z of Frash thing of just yeah, listing bands with all their albums. Yeah, list of these bands. Uh, but this is actually a point where we touched on this earlier, and as we've covered the Andrew O'Neill thing as well, this is a point that Andrew O'Neill makes when he does his um, History of Heavy Metal show, um, is that it's all happening now. Like, all of these bands that exist, have existed, have done all this interesting stuff, you can find them now so easily, and you can see all of the history of where stuff has gone. You can find all of these bands, listen to all of their stuff, and appreciate all of it. Um, and still see fantastic bands, old bands and new bands performing live today. You know, a lot of people do talk about they think that rock or metal is dead or something like that. And I think we fundamentally disagree with that. Yeah. And, and this book is a great example of, you know, call, causing bands to reform and stuff like that. If people are interested and excited about music and talk about it and write about it and all this stuff, it's never going to go away. And interesting stuff is always going to be happening. And you can look back at all of the fascinating music that's come before anything that you like. And that's awesome. Yeah, and as, as this points out, as uh, Mediation points out, like stuff's getting easier to record, it's getting easier to do things. Like, mm. If you've got a great musical idea now and you have some playing ability, you can record at home, you can, you can make... You can make this. It's great looking back at this stuff, like Slayer magazine as well, how hard it used to be to find stuff, to mm. do stuff. Mm. Now you can record a great demo without a gr- government grant. But also Sweden being the left-wing paradise it is. <laughs> I, I still find that just such an amazing element of the story. If people were doing that for me, I'd be over the moon about that. But uh, yeah, oh, there's some cool stuff as well in this about um, sort of linking back to me deviation about how bad death metal then evolved with bands like Catatonia taking this really big shift and, and Entombed even and how they changed over time. Oh yeah, the inventing kind of death and roll. Death and roll, right? yeah, yeah. As, you know, talking about when Entombed were first like, oh yeah, the next album's going to be sort of, you know, a hard rock album in Entombed style. People are like, what? <laughs> um, and then they actually did it and it was actually pretty good and there's Massively really, popular for them. really, really great examples of stuff like that. Um, and it talks about, you know, labels and the influences that they had on all of this stuff. Um, uh, one of the things I picked out from it was um, Edge of Sanity being picked up by um, Borge Forsberg, who is Quarthon's father, who owns oh, yeah. Black Mark Records. So there's all this weird, like interconnected stuff, but it has this amazing depth to it, um, and yet it's 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 never boring. It's, it's always exciting reading this book. I never, you know, I never found any of it sort of dry. It, whilst there's huge amounts of detail, it's all interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it was genuinely a really entertaining read. You don't even have to like the genre. Yeah. The other thing I should state, which I kind of forgot to earlier, is mainly focuses on the Stockholm scene, which is the early uh, death metal bands you'll know. The, the famous four are Entombed, Dismember, Grave and Unleashed. Mm. Um, but it does get into the Gothenburg scene that followed, which is the rise of melodic death metal that got way more famous mainly to, to vibe by in flames out of the gates, Dark Tranquility, which then went on mm. to create essentially that massive wave of American metal, very much in the vein of melodic death metal. Yeah. So it, it does kind of get into that, but it's more detail on the Stockholm Swedes. So if you like Bloodbath, this book would be more interesting to you than if you, you know, really like kind of inflamed stuff. Mm, mm. But yeah, there's so many bands that are covered in this as well. And there's a great there's a great set of pictures that accompanies the whole thing. We've got all these really old band posters and photos and stuff like that. There's some ancient Opeth posters. Um, there's one I remember seeing in it uh, for Eternal Torment, which is E.T. with a chainsaw, which has been like crudely drawn onto a poster. And it's great. It's Talking just... of chainsaws, you can see a picture of Dead from Mayhem in Happier Times wearing a wizard's hat standing on top of a barrel wielding a chainsaw, <laughs> which is hilarious. Yeah, yeah. There's just, 
you know, it does have that visual aspect to it as well, which is really, really cool. Um, and and it, if you get the proper package, you can get it with the free disc Swedish death metal compilation, which is an amazing compilation of early Swedish death metal songs. Almost four hours long. I listened to it all in a row <laughs> yesterday. Um, it went a bit weird. Um, but <laughs> it, it's it's absolutely brilliant. So you have all sorts of stuff from really obscure bands, like like sort of morbid or um, carbonized early on. But also there's like really, really early fairy on back when they were mm, a, a mm. death metal band, um, like straight up death metal. We get some early Edge of Sanity in there. Um, stuff like... Um, Repugnant, who again, like now, really legendary band, really seance track, which is really interesting. Um, Marduk, back when they were still yeah, death yeah, metal, yeah. with the track "Still Fucking Dead," which is <laughs> excellent. And like to finish off the show, we wanted to play one that's just a really standout, brilliant track. This band recently had all the discography re-released on vinyl, so if you've got a vinyl player, it might be a good thing to pick up. This is uh, Crypt of Cerebus's "Ancient War." But yeah, I mean, just before we sort of cut to that, just to highlight this book's really worth getting. If we haven't mm. highlighted that enough already, it's really worth reading. I've loved like dipping in and out of it, reading different sections, looking at all the photos. If you're at all interested in the genre or even just in you know the idea of what this subculture might be like, it does such a great job of covering it and giving you so many examples of different influential people within the scene. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think coming away from this episode, the books, I would say, just are a must-buy if you've got an interesting... If you just want a really interesting read. This one, Swedish Death Metal, absolutely brilliant read start to finish. Mean Deviation, and possibly I'm completely biased, but I felt that <laughs> was a truly interesting read. Because you don't have to like all the bands he's talking about. It's still interesting hearing the journey. Um, and the NoFX book, if you want like the best road stories ever. <laughs> the, the thing I forgot to mention as well, actually, with the NoFX one, they have a TV series they did of essentially right. a film crew doing road stories with them, which is totally real, and it is utterly incredible. Exactly. Yeah, that sounds weird. <laughs> yeah. Also, it seems like the Devon Townsend book's definitely a, like a highly rated one. On that yeah, list. yeah. I'd, I'd rate it really, really highly. It's, it was such an easy one for me to read, and this great sort of stream of consciousness style thing. Very unique writing style. Um, I would say you should have you should probably have some interest in at least something he's done. Yeah, yeah. And, and, or, you know, have some sort of inkling that he's a sort of personality who you find kind of entertaining, and I think he is very entertaining. But yeah, definitely put that one up there too. Yeah. Uh, we should probably plug stuff. Yeah. Um, we've got a Facebook and a Twitter, which is what? As at Breakfast Metal and just Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook. Um, philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com. Yeah, if you, if you want to get in touch by email. And then the thing is, please hit us up because... We've gone over a load of books we really enjoy, but there's there's thousands of these. Mm, if mm. someone else could recommend me something like Mean Deviation, but something that was that equivalently great look at a genre, I really want to find more of these because they are so interesting. But also great biographies. There are millions mm. of them out there. We've we've hardly scratched the surface with that. Yeah, and there's a few others I've read like in the past, which I just can't remember now. So I'm sure people out there have read other ones which were really great and you know are going to tell us that oh, we've missed out this book that's really good but yeah, yeah. like tell us because that, that spreads things that are good yeah that, that's a good thing <laughs> we, we this is hardly a definitive history this is just cool stuff we've read yeah um yeah so please get in touch with us on facebook phil's breakfast metal or phil's breakfast metal gmail.com or at phil's breakfast metal and um, yeah that would be really great uh we'll leave you with critter cerebus's the ancient war